little bit of lag, I guess, today. This past summer at Mahaffey, uh, Camp of if you don't realize this, in the Western PA District of the Alliance, we have three Alliance camps. Suncrest Camp, which is just for teens and youth. Edinburgh Camp, which is for the northwestern part of the state. That's our camp. That's a camp that we sew into as OCCA, has family camps, teen camps, all of these different things. And then we have Mahaffey Camp. And the joke inside the alliance in Western PA is that you can't go to heaven until you go to Mahaffey. So, unfortunately, we're recording this, and so somebody from Mahaffey might live, uh, listen to this, but I have Mahaffey saved in my GPS as purgatory. If you can't go to heaven until you go to Mahaffey, it's got to be purgatory. No, there's no such thing as purgatory. <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, at Mahaffey, uh, Sarah and I are going to heaven, so I don't know about the rest of you, because we spent a couple summers there. But at Mahaffey this summer, uh, the speaker, uh, every time that he spoke in the evening service, uh, he would have everybody stand during the reading of the scriptures. Now, a lot of people think, you know, okay, that's an old-timer's habit. You know, the old-timers do that. You know, they get up and they, they, let us stand for the reading of the Word of God, right? And the young folks don't get it. And, and I'm not saying whether or not that's a, that's a bad habit or a good habit. I have no issues with it. Because the reason that he was doing this, and the reason he did this every time, is he wanted to show awe and reverence for the Word of God. Right? He wanted to show awe and reverence for the Word of God. Now, again, I don't think that that is required to show awe and reverence, but it's a way that his heart was doing that, was revering what God had said down throughout the ages. He was revering the God of the Bible in that way. He was doing that out of a heart of worship, and he was asking others inside of the group to do that out of the heart of worship. Now, you may be saying, okay, well, I've been around church my whole life, and I've never seen anybody do that. It's also a black church thing. Every black church I've been in, they always stand for the reading of the Scripture. So, and he also was a black pastor, right? But uh, anyhow, so we're doing this. Now, the funny thing about it is, is that when we show this reverence for the Word of God, I've heard other Christians sometimes talk about people who are doing this and saying they're worshiping the Bible. Like the Bible's become this little idol in their life. And they don't understand the concept of revering God's Word. They don't understand holding it up. They don't understand all these things. And and so they say, well, they're just worshiping the Bible. They're just worshiping the Bible. But I don't know if that's the case or not. I mean, is this really us worshiping the Bible or is this putting the Bible in a central place of importance in the life of a Christian? I mean, is this is this placing the word at the center of all we do. Is this a scriptural concept? To place the word at the center of all we do? This is what I want us to wrestle with today. This is what I want us to wrestle with today. This, you know, we're in the, we're in the series on 
the letter to the Hebrews, and in two weeks from now, because next week I won't be preaching, but in two weeks from now, we're going to be in part two of this message. You are going to be probably overwhelmed today with a little bit of intellectualism. This is not one of those sermons that you walk away from and you're like, Woo, glory! This is one of those sermons you walk away from and you're like, Woo, headache! Okay? Bear with me today. Don't shy away from using your brain. God gave it to you. He wants you to use your brain as you understand, seek to understand the Scriptures. The Scriptures tell us, study to show yourself a work approved. Today we're going to study. We're going to think hard. We're going to wrestle with, with some, unfortunately, some Greek grammar. Because the Greek grammar is so important for the concept of these next two messages. We're going to wrestle with the concept, is putting the word at the center of all we do scriptural? If so, why? If not, why not? Is it scriptural to do this? I want to, I want to just kind of pause and I want to tell you something. Okay, you, I'm not talking about this concept. I'm not talking about when people say, well, the Bible's all we need. Okay, that's not scriptural. That's not the concept we're trying to wrestle with. The Bible's all we need. Okay, we, we, it's not about that. That's saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't work today. No, we need, we need God's Word and we need the Holy Spirit to illumine that. And the Scriptures teach that. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't understand the Scriptures. Okay? So, it's, I'm not asking you to wrestle with the concept is the Bible all we need. Because, friends, if the Bible was all we need then I need to go get another line of work. Because I'm a preacher. But you don't need me. You just need the Bible, right? No, we know that there's teachers and there's all these things. So that concept, while it sounds good on paper, the Bible's all we need, isn't really the concept we're wrestling with. And we're not wrestling with the concept either that's in the Christian and Missionary Alliance Statement of Faith that says that the Bible is inerrant as originally given and is the only divine rule for Christian faith and practice. We're not wrestling with that concept either. I'm that, that, Because we know that when we go back and we look and we judge things, we need to hold it up next to the Scripture. What I'm talking about, what the concept we want to wrestle with today is revering the Word of God. Raising it up to a place of central importance and being, you know, one of those, when the scriptures are read, you put your hand over your mouth and you're like, oh, I'm undone. Is that a biblical concept? If so, why? If not, why not? That's the concept we want to wrestle with today. In order to look at this answer, to get this answer, we need to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. And these are the same scriptures we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews 4, starting in verse 12. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You may be reading from the NIV or another translation. I'm going, when I read this, I'm going to point out something critical in the ESV and maybe in your translation that the NIV does not have. The NIV is missing a word. 
And it's critical to today's lesson. I'm going to point that word out as I read. So let's read it together. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, the word that is missing. In the NIV, it starts with the word nothing. In the Greek, it starts with the word chi, which is translated and. And this is critical. It is critical that you realize that the word chi, the English word and, is there. And that's what a lot of our lesson is going to be about today. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We ask you to speak in a very real and tangible way. We ask you to open our hearts, to open our minds, to hear your truth. Lord, challenge us. And Father, help us as we get into a kind of headier lesson today. That we would know and understand what it is that you want us to know and understand. Help us to not get headaches. Help us to not zone out. But help us to be attentive and focused. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage of Scripture begs the question, Are we word-centered? Are we a word-centered movement of God? I mean, the passage of Scripture talks about the Word of God being living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, this is good affirmation. What's happened with the decorations in our worship center? Right? I didn't ask Missy to hang this up this week. On here, on on my left, your right. I didn't ask her to hang this up where it says Hebrews 4.12 and has the sword there. That's been something she's been designing for a long time. I kind of find it interesting that this is the week that it finally gets done and gets hung. Maybe God's trying to say something. But when we look at this passage of Scripture, it would seem that the author of Hebrews places the Word of God in a high place of importance in the life of a believer. Perhaps even in the very center of the faith. The author of Hebrews puts the Word of God perhaps dead smack in the middle of the faith. He says it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and marrow. This is a powerful statement. The noted New Testament Greek scholar Kenneth uh, Royce explains it like this. When he's talking about the writer of Hebrews reading, and he's reading through Hebrews as he's explaining the, the linguistic stuff behind it, he says, The writer now warns against any insensitive. Translation, please. The writer now warns against any insincerity and lack of diligence appropriating the rest that God has offered. He says that the word of God here, the body of revealed truth which offers rest to the believer, is able to penetrate beneath any insincerity and lack of diligence on the part of those who profess, profess faith in the Messiah, but who have never really exerted 
a heart of faith in Him. Let me put it in Jerry terms like I put it, you know, like I've been telling you over the last few weeks. You can't live any way you want to and call yourself a Christian. I mean, you can, but it's not true. You can't just live any old doggone way. And I'm not preaching a works-based salvation. I believe that salvation is by faith and repentance alone. And that's it. But our lives should be changed. We can't ask Jesus into our heart and then go live like hell. Something should be different. If your life is not different when you get saved... Maybe you didn't get saved. Maybe you just said a prayer. I mean, that's what my wife did back in 1996. She said a prayer. I found out later when she actually got saved, because we realized she wasn't saved because nothing was different. She was quite a turkey to be around. Even while I was a pastor in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, my wife was lost. Ask her, she'll tell you. She'd find out we were praying for her salvation. She'd get mad. Nothing had changed. We found out after she really got saved, she shared with us that for years she would pray the sinner's prayer before bed every night. She didn't understand what, what she was doing. She had no concept of what she was doing. We have to exert a heart of faith in God as evidence of our faith. And that's what the author's warning against here. And it's, he's talking about it via the word. So now we have to wrestle with a concept. And it's going to be a tough concept. Because it seems like the author of Hebrews is putting the word at the center of all we do. But inside of the Christian and Missionary Alliance... We are unashamedly a Jesus-centered movement. The Christian and Missionary Alliance is an unashamedly Jesus-centered movement. Let me give you some history. We and my family, along with another group of church people, rewrote the song, Jesus Only. It's actually singable now. I, I love A.B. Simpson's words. To, to hymns but the guy was awful musician you know he needed he needed jeff and fran and sharon and all of you to be around him you know because he was a bad musician but great with the with the message but here's the lyrics the first verse in the chorus of the song jesus only which is the theme of the alliance jesus only is our message jesus all our themes shall be we will lift up Jesus only, and Jesus ever will we see. Je- Here's the chorus. Jesus only, Jesus ever. Jesus all in all we sing. Savior, sanctifier, glorious Lord, and coming King. It's actually Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Glorious Lord, and Coming King. We're unashamedly a Jesus-centered movement. And we need to wrestle with this concept because it looks like the author of Hebrews places the Word kind of at the center. 
And we as the Christian and Missionary Alliance say, Jesus is at the center. So it looks like there's a clash between the preeminence of the Word and the preeminence of Jesus. But can I tell you something? The Christian and Missionary Alliance being unashamedly a Jesus-centered movement does not preclude us from placing the Word of God in a place of prominence. Us being a Jesus-centered movement does not stop us from putting the Word at the center of the movement. This is because Jesus Christ is the Word of God. This is because Jesus Christ is the Word of God. This Word, this term, translated Word in verse 12, according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it carries this as part of its definition. The Word is not just what Jesus said, but the mystery of God disclosed in Christ. In other words, the Word is just not the pages of Scripture. But the Word is also the ultimate author of Scripture. And you've got to come to a place where you understand this this next week or these next two weeks where you wrestle with this. Where you wrestle with this. And, and, and we're going to talk in two weeks from now about how, how many of us are committing blasphemy on a regular basis. And it's going to be a tough one. But it's because we don't recognize that, and, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. But, I, but I, I need to kind of plant a seed for you to think about. When we ignore what the pages of Scripture clearly tell us to do, we're basically telling God He can kiss off. That we don't have to do it His way. We're having no reverence for Him. No awe for Him. We're not, we're not following Him. When we explain away why that passage of Scripture doesn't apply to me, and, and, and Christians in the New Testament church are really bad about this because we say, well, the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore. I'm a New Testament believer. That is bad. The Bible that Jesus carried was the Old Testament. The Bible that Paul carried was the Old Testament. He preached Jesus from the Old Testament. But I get ahead of myself. You have to understand that this is the mystery of Christ disclosed to us. This is more than just a book. This is more than just a book. And so we have to deal with a complicated lesson in Greek. I want to ask this question as we get ready to go on. How can this be true that the Word is both the Scriptures and the one who wrote the Scriptures? And you'll see on the slide that it says, and is important. The first word in verse 13 is the Greek word chi, which is appropriately translated and. 
And again, some translations like the NIV have excluded that word. And it's not, and I'm not trying to tell you the NIV is bad. The NIV is a more dynamic translation trying to translate thought for thought. The ESV is not a word-for-word translation, but it's closer to word-for-word. There is no word-for-word translation except for when you look at like a... The closest thing you can get is like a Greek New Testament that's got an interlinear, but you try to read the sentence in English and it makes no sense because Greek sentence structure isn't the same as ours. Okay, But the word and is what starts this phrase in the Greek. To say it another way, this is a conjunction that connects this verse to the verse preceding it. And here's where it gets a little complicated. And here's why I encourage the deaf class this morning to not get confused. I spent some time in the, in the deaf class this morning explaining this concept because I'm going to use some words that I'm not even sure I know what they mean all the way. And then Bonnie's going to have to try to translate it real fast. And it just gets confusing. You'll see what I'm talking about in just a second. According to the glossary of morphosyntactic database terminology, it argues... <laughs> see what I'm saying? All right, so let me just break this down for you real quick. So according to a really technical grammar book on, on Greek, okay? Ready? It argues that chi is what's called a logical connective. A logical connective. Which means it's a conjunction that connects an additional idea or grammatical element, such as a word, phrase, or clause, to a previous idea or a grammatical element. So I want to help you to understand this. So let's sing it if you know it. You ready? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Right? It's that simple, right? It's that simple. And... And is a particular the chi is a particular type of, of, of conjunction that's a logical connective. Now let me give you some examples. The connective conjunction may serve to logically continue a narrative, such as and Jesus said. As he's talking there, and Jesus said, blah 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 blah. Or to associate two items that in context are together the mutual focus of the clause, such as Aquila and Priscilla taught Apollos. Right? That's another lesson in and of itself that I won't go to. But Aquila and Priscilla, or actually it's Pris- you know, Priscilla's first in that list. Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos. But anyhow, the Lexham Syntactic Greek New Testament Glossary of Terminology, let me break that down. A different Greek grammar book argues that chi is a copulative conjunction. Kind of think about what the word copulate means, okay? And you'll understand. It's a conjunction used to bind two words together in a close relationship of logic. Okay? I know, it's getting like, what? This is basically a very complex way to state the obvious. The and that begins verse 13 purposely connects it to verse 12 in an important way. 
every single word of Scripture is critical. Including something as simple as Kai. God doesn't mince words. He doesn't waste our time writing things that we don't need to hear. God could have said this any way that he wanted to through the author of Hebrews. He chose to what? To what? (laughs) That's a combination of word and put. He chose to put the word and at the beginning of this phrase, in the second verse 13. By the way, there's no verse markings anywhere in Scripture, nor are there chapter markings. Those are things that we've added after the fact, okay, to help us to navigate. So that way when I say open up your Bibles to Hebrews, da 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 we can all get there, <laughs> right? God put this word and in there. And what I went through is a, is a complex way to explain this to you because I want to build the argument in your mind for you to wrestle with, not to convince you, for you to wrestle with with the Spirit of God that the word and is critical for you to understand this passage of Scripture. You cannot get rid of this word. And you have to say, God, why is it there? This does not mean that I want you to always get caught up with all the intricate details of Scripture and and miss the forest for the trees. But this is perhaps a tree that we need to stop and look at and go, okay, this tree is, is showing us the way. This tree is important. It's kind of a directive tree. So what I want you to understand, we're going to talk about the logos here, but what I want you to understand is, as we wrestle with this and be important, therefore the subject of verses 12 and 13 are the same. I.e., his and him of verse 13 are synonymous with the word in verse 12. Okay? So let's, let's do an English grammar lesson. When you use personal pronouns, which in in academic writing, you're typically discouraged from using personal pronouns because people often wonder, well, who's the personal pronoun about? Who does it tie to? Who is the he? Who is the him? And we're really quick on this one on verse 13 where it says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. We're like, well, that's God. But it's in context of a passage of Scripture, that personal pronoun is not, that that line is not standing alone. It's referring to somebody that's already been referenced. It's not just a random his or him. It's referring to the subject of the sentence before because it's all connected. What is the subject of verse 12? For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart, and continuing on, connected to this previous thought, no creature is hidden from, and then it changes to this personal pronoun, his. Which, friends, I'm arguing is the word. Why is this important? Here's why it's important. 
because we want to go often and, and wrestle with the Scriptures and, and memorize little passages of Scriptures and we don't realize that the His and Him that are there is the same as, as the Word. We don't realize that when we're memorizing Scripture, when we're looking at the Scriptures, that what we're doing really is, is memorizing Jesus. We're becoming familiar with who He is. We're becoming familiar with His speaking voice. This is tied back, this personal pronoun. You can take any English teacher and say, okay, when it, these two sentences together, who's the he, who's the him? And that doesn't know anything about God, they would say, well, it's got to be the word. If we substituted the Greek word there and they didn't know that it was the word, word, and we put logos there, and it would say, let us, there, or excuse me, I was reading the wrong verse, for the logos of God is living and active, they would say, okay, it must be the logos. What's the logos? Or the Logos, however you want to pronounce it. What's the Logos of God? Because that, that's, a, that's a He, that's a Him. That's who it is talking about. And you might think, okay, Pastor, you're kind of going out in the left field here. And you know, your argument, thanks for the grammar lesson, but man, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. There's no way. There's no way. The Greek term translated word is the term logos, and it is the same designation the Apostle John uses for Jesus in the Gospel of John. The first chapter of the Gospel of John begins this way. I'm going to substitute the Greek word in place of where the English word is in the, in the verses. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God. And the logos was God. And in verse 14 of that very chapter, it says, And the Logos became manifest in the flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same term. And the Logos of God is powerful and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You've got to wrestle with this. You've got to get a hold of this. You've got to let this pierce you down in, in your very heart. That when we talk about the scriptures, we're not talking about merely some pages to read, some verses to proof text our ideas. We're talking about something that should be handled with awe and reverence because it is Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying Jesus is a book. I'm not saying this is Jesus, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is the embodiment. There's, it's this mystery. And, and you say, well, how can Jesus be the Word and the Bible be the Word? How can both be the Word? I don't know. They just are. Ask Jesus when you get to heaven, if you can remember. I don't think you're going to have time to ask him the question. I think you're going to be too busy worshiping. But if you can remember, ask him. 
We don't have to take all the mystery out of God. I'm not going to even try to take all the mystery out of God. Because it's impossible. I have a finite mind. It's limited in its scope and capability. I will never fully understand an infinite God with my finite mind. I will never fully understand someone who is unlimited in scope and capability with my limited scope and capability. I'm okay with some of the things about Jesus being a beautiful mystery. You should be too. We don't have to work out how the Lagos is the Scriptures and it is Jesus. We just have to trust that it is. And you know I'm going to get to homework where it's going to go through later on and you're going to get to read Scriptures this week and figure out for yourself if I'm making this up or not. But we have got to begin to wrestle with this concept, friends. Because what I'm trying to get to you today to understand is that in effect, the author is likely saying that Jesus is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That it's Jesus that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it's Jesus that no creature can hide from. And it's Jesus that we're all standing naked before. And it's Jesus to whom we must give an account. Oh, and New Testament believers don't like that. We have to give an account to Jesus for our actions. You are going to answer to your God in heaven. For everything you've ever done. Revelation chapter 20 says it friends. It says that every single person appears before the judgment seat of Christ. And it has to give an account for everything that they did. For every idle word. For everything. It does not say that believers are exempt from this. It says the books are open. And all of our deeds are looked at. And believers are not exempt from this. Then it says another book is open, and if anyone's name was not, which is the Lamb's book of life, and if anyone's name's not written there, they're sent to the lake of fire. Church, you have to give an account for how you obeyed the Logos. And God's going to show you in that time the things that maybe you thought were righteousness, that were sin. And your righteousness is going to become, in a very literal sense, as filthy rags before the Lord. And if grace doesn't seem that amazing to you right now, it surely will on that day. Because He's going to show you just how depraved you are. That there was nothing good in you. That there was nothing worth redeeming. That you were totally, 100% depraved and He redeemed you for one fact and one fact alone because He wanted to love you. And for those of us who are born again, it's a perfect setup for an eternity of worship. When I see just how messed up I am. When I see just how dirty I was and I go, oh, but he loved me anyways. But he loved me anyways. 
We're going to have to give an account for this. But I don't want you to take my word for it because we're going to be talking about how we blaspheme him in two weeks. And so I want you to look at the homework this week. Monday, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Tuesday will be John chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Wednesday, Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Thursday, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. Friday, Psalm 119, verses 105 through 112. And Saturday, Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. As I pray, worship team, stay put. Stay put where you're at. We're going to do something else before the worship team comes back forward. Let's pray. Father, we know that you don't waste words. And we are struggling right now, some of us, Some of us aren't. Some of us have embraced this. And Father, I pray for those who've embraced it that they would back off embracing it and begin struggling with it. Go read your scriptures this week and and read the word and see what the word says. But Lord, others of us are admittedly struggling with this concept. And I ask you, Lord, to speak through your word this week. I want you to speak, Lord, through your word this week. to transform us, to renew us, to radically change us, to help us to understand. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.